I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. Our guest today was at the forefront of building the MLS reach in the United States. Darren Eels was Arthur Blank's first hire to build out his vision for the MLS franchise. A native of England, was educated at Brown, went back to get his law degree at Cambridge, and eventually got into professional football in the Premier League and was hired from Tottenham to Atlanta United. His success in having 70,000 fans to attend an MLS game is unprecedented. He discusses his story of how his career began and how he took his vision. And with the help of uh, Arthur Blank, has been able to build this incredible franchise. Our guest, Darren Eels. Welcome, friends. I've got an, in, uh, an individual who is part of a team that may be the most educated in professional sports. Their CEO is from West Point. The individual who runs football is a, is a Princeton undergrad and a lawyer. And our guest, Darren Eels, is a Brown undergrad and a Cambridge lawyer. So to put that together and look at any other organization in the United States, I would put them up against them. And Arthur Blank's decision to bring intellect into his organization is always something he's appreciated. Hi, Jed. Yeah, lovely to talk to you. Yeah, I wind uh, Rich up that obviously Brown's much better than Princeton. Yeah, the, um, so talk about your journey. It began in England. Uh, you came across the pond. Was educated here. You went back to England. Um, you read law, uh, and then you were a striker, and then you began in in professional uh, in professional football. So, uh, give us a quick skinny on that, and then we'll get more in depth in terms of what you've done with Atlanta. Jed, you know, I started off. I'm really a failed soccer player, so I played for a team in England called Cambridge United. So they played at the time in the championship, which is the league below the Premier League. And the way it works in England is at 16, you get offered a, an apprenticeship. Um, most people leave school at 16 if they're a soccer player and they're playing for a professional club. But my parents, thankfully, kept me on in, uh, in education. So I was unusual in that I carried on education whilst playing. So my nickname in the dressing room was the professor and I got made fun of. But, you know, I look back at that and I'm really glad my folks uh, insisted that I stay on at school. So at 18, I didn't get a professional contract beyond that. Um, and so I was wondering what to do. And someone came, there was a coach from West Virginia University, so WVU. Uh, he came in those days, it'll date me a bit, but it was a slide projector. Uh, and we were playing a, an academy game against West Ham. And I'll always remember it because we weren't a very good team. We were losing 4-0, but I knew this guy was watching me. So I was running for every ball, uh, you know, really, you know, trying my socks off. And my teammates were like, what are you doing? We're 4-0 down, but 
I wanted to impress this scout. And he, he came to my house afterwards. And I remember he was showing me slides on the slide projector of Morgantown and Mountaineer Field, packed to the gills for a football match, you know, with the, with the crowd. And I thought, wow, this could be quite fun. My mum went to make a cup of tea and then he explained to me about what sororities were with my accent, that, you know, they have these sort of, the, my accent with the women in West Virginia. So my mum came back and I always remember saying, yeah, this looks like a good academic opportunity, mum. You should let me sort of explore it. Uh, and so the way I looked at it was a gap year. So for me, it was, I was going to go for a year, play at West Virginia University soccer on a scholarship. Um, and then, you know, I'll come back and get a, a proper degree. That was my theory. And I tell you what, I loved it. What I loved about it, I didn't appreciate at the time how huge college athletics was in the United States. So I went to, to Morgantown, West Virginia. We did play at Mountaineer Field, not in front of the American football crowds. We had like 200 people if we were lucky, but, but the facilities were amazing. You know, it was, it was really interesting. It was better facilities than I was playing in at Cambridge United as a professional team uh, in England. And just to put it in context, this was a year before the money came in from the Premier League and Sky TV. So, you know, we were still behind a little bit in terms of facilities, but I was amazed with America and what you had in college athletics. So the deal I struck with my parents was if I could get to an Ivy League school, they'd let me stay. Uh, and I was fortunate enough. I had a good year playing soccer. Um, and in the end, I chose Brown as as the place to go and play soccer. So I had a wonderful time, you know, playing at Brown. We had a pretty good team at the time. Uh, but then again, when I graduated, it was an interesting time in U.S. soccer because the World Cup was in 94. Major League Soccer got delayed till 1996 in the start date. Uh, I graduated in 95. So I ended up playing in the A-League for New York Centaurs. So this was in um, Randall Island between Queens and Manhattan. It was it, it's really interesting when I look at the evolution of soccer in America. This was at a time where they felt they had to Americanize the sport. The feeling was it was too low scoring. Americans just, you know, wouldn't like soccer how it was. So they were trying to do gimmicky things like, I mean, I remember we had kick-ins instead of throw-ins. We had music playing while the game was going on. And I look back on it now and I always say to people that the problem with that, it was, you know, it was neither fish nor fowl. If you were a true socket aficionado, then you would watch this and think it's not the real thing. And likewise, if you weren't really a soccer fan, playing some music, doing a kick-in instead of a throw-in really wasn't going to move the needle. So, um, you know, we played in front of, there, we were lucky to get, you know, 300 watchers. Um, and so I ended up playing a season. I got quite badly injured. And then I had to sort of think about a real job. So that's when I went back to England and did law at Cambridge. And then I became a barrister. So in England, the barrister wears the wig and gown, goes around doing the trials. It's like the trial attorney. So I spent probably six years doing that, you know, doing the sort of going around the circuit in court every day on my feet, sort of arguing in front of judges. And, uh, I didn't really enjoy it, to be honest, Jed, because what I missed was the team part of it. So when you're a barrister, you're self-employed, um, you're just going from case to case. And what I missed was that team camaraderie. So I had the offer to go to West Bromwich Albion, which was in the Premier League at the time as their legal counsel. And so I jumped at that. Uh, and the rest, they say, is history. I got lucky because I ended up taking the soccer side. So I went to Tottenham and I did a role that was similar to like the GM would be uh, the term over here. Um, was having a great time at Tottenham. I mean, big club. Uh, it was at a time where we just qualified for the Champions League. We were consolidating ourselves as a sort of top six club in in England and, you know, fighting for European spots. Uh, really enjoyed it. And then, of course, I, I got the, the call from Arthur Blank, who was, you know, had this interesting proposal to start a new team up in Atlanta. And I must admit, initially I went to that thinking, there's no chance I'm going to move from from Spurs. But as I 
spoke to Arthur and realised what the project was, it seemed like a, an opportunity too good to miss. Well, the thing you, for, you uh, neglected to mention was you were an All-American player at, at Brown as well. I mean, there are not very many All-American players that come out of Ivy League schools. So that just says something about uh, your ability. You might not have been at the premier level, but your ability, at least in American soccer, was at a, was at a high pitch, so to say. So let's talk about, so Arthur, I mean, I remember your wife was pregnant. He sent a plane, brought you across the pond. I mean, he really gave you uh, concierge treatment. Yeah, it was amazing. And again, I mean, you know, when I look back at it, I, I came over and there's a couple of things that swung it for me. Firstly, when I came over for the initial chat uh, in New York, um, you know, it was the first round of interviews. I went to a game, it was Turkey were playing in a, America were playing Turkey just before the World Cup that year. Uh, this was uh, this was back in wow, time goes quickly. 2014. Uh, I went to the game and I was on the train getting the path train to um, the Red Bull Stadium. The train was packed. There was an amazing atmosphere. It was a sellout. And for me, coming from you know when I played in New York 20 years earlier, uh, it felt much more like I was going to a game in London. So that really excited me. The way that soccer had developed in my time away from from the United States. Uh, but the real thing that clinched it for me was when I went to the interview. So I flew to Atlanta to meet with Arthur at Flowery Branch, which is where the Falcons train. And I always remember it because it was difficult. I, you know, obviously didn't want to let Spurs, my employers, know that I was going to have this chat. Uh, so trying to carve out like a 48-hour window to be able to zip over to Atlanta was difficult. But I managed it. Uh, and so I flew over. Uh, I went to the Flowery Branch. And as soon as I got there, there were TV cameras everywhere. It was really strange. You know, there was a TV camera as I came into reception. I was then going up the stairs. There was another TV camera around. And I later found out during the interview process that they were filming Hard Knocks that season with the Atlanta Falcons. Oh, so there's a scene where Arthur wanted me to meet the head coach at the time of the GM after we'd gone through the, the interview. So I had a hat on. I had like a jacket, even though it was roasting hot. This is August time because I was paranoid in England. They show it like two weeks later that, you know, someone from Tottenham would see me on the show. So I was like trying to be in disguise. But when I went to that interview, you know, Arthur Blank, he had everybody from all of his businesses. So Rich McKay, who you mentioned earlier, president of the Falcons, Penny McPhee, president of his foundation, Dick Sullivan, who runs PJ Superstore. So all of the people across his whole group of businesses were there at that interview. And for me, it spoke volumes that Atlanta United was going to be an equal partner. This wasn't going to be a little brother that was just going to fill up the new stadium. Um, and that, for me, was where I was really hooked because I could see the potential for Major League Soccer. I could see the potential for Atlanta. But with an owner as committed as Arthur, for me, that was when I was, you know, really excited by the project. So talk about how you, I mean, it was how many years before you were going to launch a team that you had? Yeah, it was a long lead in. And again, I think, you know, when I look back to, you know, it all starts with Arthur Blank in terms of, of how we built the club. And I think there's three factors with Arthur that really helped us with Atlanta United. I think firstly, he had an emotional connection with the sport because Josh Blank, his son, played soccer at a really good level. Um, you know, he actually played at Elon um, and just recently graduated. So, you know, Arthur had that emotional connection, which was was helpful. I think secondly, he was already a sports franchise owner. So when I think about things, when we were talking in the initial interview about training facilities, all the things that you need as a building block to build something that's going to be world class. He already knew that because he owned the Falcons. So you weren't talking to an owner that was coming into this fresh. And then thirdly, and I think it's a it's something that gets overlooked. Arthur's the ultimate startup guy. You know, you think of Home Depot back in the 70s, one first store in Atlanta that became one of the biggest retailers in the world. And so he has that startup mentality. 
he understood that you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. And so he was very committed. And, um, you know, in particular, look, he hired me two years, four months before we kicked a ball. I think previously in Major League Soccer, the approach was you don't want to incur the cost till you start to get some of the, the funds coming in. So they would leave hires as late as possible. Uh, Arthur took the opposite view. He was like, right, let's go out there. Let's try and do a you know, worldwide search for a president. Uh, hire him as employee number one and give us the most runway. Think of it like a you know, store opening cost to be able to launch this franchise the best way we can. So, you know, real credit to Arthur to give us that time. But yeah, I came on board Thanksgiving. I started 2014 um, and it was really two, like I said, two months and sorry, two years and five months before we were going to kick a ball. And that really helped us because it meant we could really be strategic about building the grassroots interest, building, you know, excitement for the club. And uh, obviously, you know, that really did give us that runway that, that really helped us launch in the way that we did. So how did you put your priorities together in terms of whether it was the roster, whether it was the staff you were hiring, whether it was thinking about an academy? How did all that come together? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was interesting because in true Arthur fashion, you know, I came for that 48 hours interview. Uh, I landed and I had a note saying, could you just present tomorrow, you know, short slide presentation on, you know, what your thoughts are for the first three years? You know, and, uh, you know, how are you going to build it? And uh, so I put something together. And I still have it here. It's literally right here by my office because I'm really proud about it. I, I gave a presentation um, and basically it wasn't rocket science. We had three sort of themes that was common with what Arthur wanted and what, you know, I was thinking as we built the club. Firstly, to be competitive on the pitch. So, you know, for me, yes, we were coming as a brand new club in, in Major League Soccer, but like all sports, it's about what happens on the pitch first and foremost. So, you know, I was pretty confident we could put together a roster that could be competitive from the start. And that was, you know, number one aim. The number two aim, and this again, met with all that sort of Arthur looks for in all of his businesses, but particularly building a new club from scratch was the supporters. So trying to ensure the best supporter engagement as we built that club. And obviously we had a real advantage being a club starting from scratch because you want to try and make the supporters feel part of the movement. And they were there right from day one. So you could bring them on the journey. And then thirdly, it was being basically the heart of the community. You know, we weren't going to be able to build a club and expect the community to engage with us unless we engage with them. So we had sort of those three as our overarching aims. And then as you're thinking on your priorities, if you look at it through those three, three lenses, it becomes easier to sort of discern what's important. So let me give an example. We were quite early on clear that our academy, so in soccer, unlike the other professional sports, we have from under 12s up to under 17s. Uh, we have age groups where we've got Atlanta United players. And then if they're good enough players to make it to your first team, you can sign them on what they call a homegrown contract. And you know it's really important because when you're building in a salary cap, a homegrown player doesn't hit your cap. So that's a very good advantage in terms of a roster building tool. Also, if you get a player that's come through your academy, they understand your style of play, the culture you expect. You're not taking a risk on a player that you can do all your due diligence. You never know a player from overseas until they're in the building. And then thirdly, the fans love a homegrown player because he's someone from the community. So we were, you know, an academy is important from a being competitive on the pitch. You know, one of those three things I spoke about. But then secondly, you know, we started the academy a year before the first team. And the reason we did that was, yes, it was going to be more expense. But also, one, we started the fast track getting kids into our pipeline earlier. Secondly, 
it gave our brand exposure in the marketplace before we were playing games. So our first academy game, we had 5,000 fans come out. We treated it like a match to be able to create rituals. So, you know, doing the academy early was a good reason to sort of engage with our supporter base. And then thirdly, we were already out in the community. So we were doing clinics for, you know, kids in Clarkson, which is a refugee area. So again, when we thought and had asked ourselves that question, Arthur and I, do we want to start this academy early? It ticked all three boxes, helped us on winning, helped us in the supporter culture and helped us with the community. So you know, that's the lens that we used as we sort of thought about our decisions as we built the club. When you talk about supportive group and culture, we're talking about sponsors. Talk about the commercial side when you're talking about that group of people that you're are they Yeah, so it's an interesting one because we we very much focus on on the supporters. So again, we wanted to build the supporter base. So the way it works for for us at Atlanta United, we have four supporters groups that basically are organic entities. They set themselves up. Uh, our oldest one is Terminus Legion, but there's four of them that are official supporters groups. And they fill the, the section in Mercedes-Benz Stadium when we have the 5,000 strong crowd under the window to the city. Um, and we cultivated that supporter group right from the very start. And, you know, it's one of the jokes we had because we were going to any event that had soccer. So Premier League viewing parties on a Saturday morning. I would be going to the Liverpool viewing party one week, the, the Manchester United group. Um, and it was so much so. A lot of that involved drinking, obviously, because that supporter culture. They usually got a drink or two. And I remember we were presenting to Don Garber and MLS as we were coming in in 2017, just a short deck as we were about to come in. And we're trying to find a photo of me without a drink in my hand. And in the end, we had to like Photoshop one because the way we built it was almost like pub crawl your way to success. We were going to meet the supporters where they were. And so we wanted to build that supporter base and that excitement. And then separately to that, the commercial side, uh, the, the thought process was that takes care of itself. You know, once we've got the supporter base built, we obviously had the wonderful Mercedes-Benz Stadium. We were able to use our partnership with the Falcons to really have an interesting proposition. You know, if you're a chief executive of a company, you know, you've got NFL. So NFL obviously is the gorilla in the room in terms of the TV numbers. But with Atlanta United, you get international appeal. You get the younger demographics, more Hispanic. So if you're a CEO, having that combination of Falcons and United really was quite good for you to go to your shareholder base and say, look, this is a partnership that ticks a lot of boxes and makes sense. So, you know, certainly on the commercial side, we were really fortunate to be part of a group of businesses because that definitely gave us an edge that we wouldn't have had if we were just a standalone club. And then you launched and you filled the stadium. I mean, you, you, your attendance is, it's amazing what you've been able to do. No, it's really surprising. Um, even now, I sort of pinch myself and I don't know if it's the Englishman in me that, you know, I always think every time I go to a game, today's the day that no one shows up. It's like, you know, I hate doing parties because you're just afraid no one shows up. But it's incredible. I mean, that first game, Jed, we had 50,000 at Georgia Tech. Uh, and it really never stopped since that. Um, this season, even, even in the COVID, we're averaging over 44,000. We're the eighth largest club in the world this year in attendance. So we're, a, we're ahead of Liverpool, Atletico Madrid. And, and it's our fifth year now. You know, it's not like we were the shiny new toy. Everyone said, OK, we didn't expect it, but then it's going to drop off. And it's been the contrary. And it's really interesting because when I took the job, Everybody, you know, I got a lot of people saying, wow, Arthur Blank, MLS, you know, is a growth opportunity, really pleased for me. But a few people were saying, oh, Atlanta, it's a bit of a fickle sports town. And they weren't sure that soccer would work in the South. And, you know, 
one of the things I'm really pleased and proud about is I think we showed what Atlanta is. It really is an exciting, diverse, growing city. You know, it's 7 million and growing. It's, um, it's a great sports city. We saw it with the Braves, the way the fans turned up as they won the World Series. And I think it had a bad reputation. And so I quite liked it when we sort of basically <laughs> stuffed it to the critics in that first year. And obviously in our second year, when we won the Cup and we had 73,000 at the stadium for the game against Portland, I think we showed that, you know, Atlanta gets an unjustified bad rap for being a sports town. But I think what we also showed is, you know, the potential for soccer in this country, it almost is limitless because, you know, we're getting the crowds we are at the moment. <clears throat> and what gives me, you know, excitement as I get up each day is I know we've got a whole bigger audience that we can still reach. And so, you know, World Cup coming in 26, the ability for us to look to do more and more full stadium games. We do at the moment somewhere between four and six full stadium games. But our dream is to get to 17, you know, matches of 70,000. But I think, you know, with all of the tailwinds that we have for soccer in this country, you know, one day that's going to come. And I think that's that's what's really exciting about my role is obviously I've got my hat on with Atlanta United and that's, you know, I'm focused on making us as successful as we can be and we're super competitive. We want to be winning. But then also you're a pioneer for the sport. You're growing. We're still growing the sport. You know, we know we're not at the levels of NFL yet obviously, or, you know, baseball or NBA. But what we do have is the global game. We know with things like the World Cup coming, we've got this growth potential. And so for me, that's the other exciting part of the role is that you're also thinking, okay, how do we help the league as a whole grow? Well, you've also picked your managers. I mean, uh, your first manager, how did you talk about how you've hired, what you look for in a manager? Yeah, I mean, it was it was interesting because the way that we were building the club, you know, normally in my past experience when I was at Tottenham Hotspur or West Bromwich Albion, you're obviously playing. You're either in season, out of season. When when a manager moves on, you're very quick to to replace them. We had that strange situation where I was hired two and a you know bit years before we were going to start training. You haven't got any players at that stage, so you know when do you hire? What time in the process? And so the way we'd approached it is that we were. We were monitoring situations, but with about from the summer before we started, sort of nine months before, that was when we said, OK, we're going to seriously start considering. And, you know, we were very fortunate that Tata Martino, who at the time had been the, the manager of Argentina, the national team, his prior role had been coach of Barcelona. You know, so a really big deal in terms of the coaching world. Uh, and my last high when I was at Tottenham Hotspur was a guy called Maurizio Pochettino. So really top class guy, great coach. Uh, really nice man. Um, and he had played for Tata. So his debut when he played for Newell Old Boys, a club that's in uh, Rosario, Argentina, was when Tata was manager. So I got a call, as I often did. You know, I'd get like five a day on players or coaches. I got a call saying, you know, Tata was still at Argentina at the time, but he's interested in, in MLS. And I was pretty skeptical, but I said, look, all right, I'll do a 30 minute conference call just to see. You know, I've got to at least do my due diligence. I remember doing that call and it was through translation with Tata, but he genuinely seemed interested and asked the right questions. So myself and Carlos Bocanegra, who's our technical director, the former national team um, captain for the United States, we literally jumped on a plane two days later to go to Rosario because, you know, for me, if Tata was interested, he was clearly someone that was at the top of my list. And Jed, we went to Rosario, we had two days. I remember we had a lunch that famously, you know, we started it, I mean, they'll eat forever at the steakhouses in Argentina, but we started at probably one o'clock and we left at 
you know, we had the salt shakers out playing, you know, how we were going to set up a team. And I knew then it was really interesting because, you know, for me, I was able to get a sounding from Maurizio because he obviously knew Tata well. So Tata was clearly a great coach and Maurizio vouched for him as a person. So that was good enough for me. I think for Tata, what was interesting, he was able to talk to Maurizio as well. So it was one of those where the relationships you build up through whatever industry you're in, you never know when they're going to help you and when they're going to be something that's going to benefit you in the future. But that was certainly something where, you know, we hired Tata and he was just a fantastic first coach for us in that first two years. We obviously won the cup in our second season, but he was just, he gave us the, you know, the gravitas, the, you know, the exciting style of play. He just ticked all the boxes and he was a real pleasure to work with. Well, then you've had to go through a rebuild and, and got them back again where you're back in the playoffs. So how did, talk about what that was like. Yeah, look, and I think it was, it was really interesting because, you know, we were fortunate. We had playoffs first year. Obviously, we were the first team to make the playoffs in Seattle, um, I think, seven years previously. We then won the Cup in our second year. In our third year, we won the U.S. Open Cup, which is in soccer, we have two trophies that we play for. We also won what was called the Campeones Cup, which is we beat the champions of Mexico. Um, so we'd had all of this success. And then when COVID hit, we have a player, Jose Martinez, who is our star striker. He scored on average a goal a game. He was the MVP um, in, in, our, um, in our cup winning season. You know, so he's a, he's a superstar player. And we had him out for an ACL. Obviously, COVID hit. And it hit us, I think, even more disproportionately to the other clubs because we were playing in front of no fans when we used to play in in front of 70,000. So we had a tough season. We didn't make the playoffs. It was our only year that we haven't made the playoffs. But I think, you know, like anything in life, you get a better sense of you and the organization in adversity. And I think, you know, this season, I'm really proud of how, you know, the clubs bounce back from that. I think we, there's a few things. I think we all learned it in every sport. But, and I don't think, particularly since I came to America, I'm really impressed with how American sports focus on the fans. Um, I think, there's a tendency in the Premier League in England because your fandom is inherited in effect. If your dad was a Spurs fan, you're a Spurs fan and you sort of stick to him through thick and thin. There's a tendency to take the support for granted. You can't do that in America. And I think, you know, American sports do a great job of that connection with the supporters. But I think we'd all agree that year in 2020 without the fans cemented how important the supporters are. You know, like, particularly, I'd say in soccer. You know, we play these games without fans and they're not real games. They're not even the same intensity. Like, it's not even the same product because it might be the same players, but without the crowd there, it just feels false. So I think, you know, this season for us was about almost a reboot. So we treated 2021 as almost like a franchise relaunch, like we did in 17. And, you know, we went back to, you know, certainly by the end of the season, I think we've really got into our stride with the engagement with our supporters. We had an open training session about a month ago with Gonzalo Pineda, our coach, saying, look, let's open it to the fans. So we had, you know, our supporters groups in here uh, watching training. You know, So we had the atmosphere like a match. But it was, again, trying to get that connection back with the fan base. And I think, you know, for me, that was, that's what I'm really pleased with with Atlanta United. I think we've come through a tougher time and no one wants to go through that that season not making the playoffs. But I do feel that we're, we're stronger as an organisation from it. And also, again, I mean, that's the reality. It's a competitive league. There's ups and downs. We've seen it this season in Major League Soccer. LAFC, a really good club, didn't make the playoffs. Columbus, who won the championship last year, didn't make the playoffs. And so you're always going to get ups and downs. So I think, you know, at some level, 
even the fans got to experience that it's not always the sugar rush of, you know, success upon success. And I think, you know, my personal learning is, and it's what I try to reflect on. I've been ups and downs in soccer my whole life. I was at West Bromwich Albion when we got relegated from the Premier League, which is, you know, one of the saddest days you can have in sports because you know you're going to have to make redundancies, you know, the next week. And so for me, like when you're having the up and having fun, we're in the entertainment industry. So don't take it too seriously. You know, my view is we'll have fun when when things are going well, you know, let's enjoy it and let's not sort of kid ourselves that it means more than life because I feel like there's a tendency in sports that you you get a little bit, you take yourself too seriously, you're in your bubble and you think that the world sort of stops and starts with what's happening with your team. And ultimately, we're in the entertainment industry. And so, you know, I feel like sometimes we all could take a sort of a check and realize that there's bigger things out there. Yeah, and from my perspective, working with Arthur, that's one of the things he understands is the importance of the fan. I mean, mm-hmm. I think he really wants to make sure that the fan has a, a unique experience, whether it's one that pays for a premium seat or whether it's one at the top of the top of the arches. No, absolutely. And again, I mean, you know, I give there's so many examples with Arthur of how he did that, but you know, you, you see the fan friendly pricing that we have at our stadium. So a hot dog is one dollar fifty. And again, that's Arthur's whole sort of mindset is okay i built this wonderful stadium but why should that be an excuse for me to try and basically just you know target those fans that are in the building and and in effect you know gouge them for as much as i can he takes the opposite view his view is okay they're committed what can we do to make their day better and the really interesting thing on that jet is you know we went through that process and what happens is firstly people spend more so revenues actually end up being just as good and they're also spending more in the club shop because they say, OK, wow, you know, what a what an experience I saved on the hot dogs. I'm going to go and buy another Atlanta United scarf or shirt. So, you know, it's economic sense as well, but it, that's not the rationale for doing it. The rationale is how can I make that supporter experience better, that they feel more engaged? Um, and it goes back to his roots from Home Depot. You know, his approach hasn't changed since then. And the other piece, I, I think, where him being a previous owner helped in terms of building your facilities. I mean, I think you were ahead of the league as it related to what he, the, the state-of-the-art uh, complex you have. Yeah, we were really fortunate. I think that's a great example, Jed, of where you know we even talked about the training ground in my first meeting with him. I had some pictures of, of Tottenham Hotspur's training ground because while I was there, we built the training ground that, that they're currently in. And it was, you know, I'd obviously had my experience of going around the globe looking at world-class facilities and as we were talking you know in a salary cap league the advantage of having the best training facility is quite quickly it gets around the league and again if you're a free agent that's got the chance to earn the same money at whichever club they want to pick and you know that Atlanta United you've got this amazing children's healthcare of Atlanta training ground quite quickly that becomes a tool that helps you competitively on the pitch so again it was a really good example Arthur knew that from the Falcons as well but it just it just really helped. And we were fortunate. I mean, our facility here is is first class. You know, it's a, it's not the scale of Spurs, but I put it up there in terms of the level of finish that just the, you know, the facilities that we have there. And, and it's been a real boon for us in terms of recruitment. Also, you know, we're excited with the World Cup coming up because this is going to be a fantastic training venue for, for one of the you know countries when they come for the World Cup. Again, you know, it's been a pleasure getting to know you from that first phone call and first trip to seeing what you've accomplished and and being able to do it in such a, a humble and uh, refreshing way. So 
again, I appreciate your help through the years on things that I've worked on, Darren. And I'm glad that you've had this incredible success and this alignment that you have uh, with uh, with your owner uh, is is critical in my mind. As I do all these different searches, if you're not aligned with the owner, it's tough to have success. Now, look, thanks for having me on, Jed, and thanks for all your support. I really appreciate it. Well, cheers and good luck in the playoffs. Maybe cheers, we, thanks. You call those cups? Yeah, the MLS Cup. That'd be nice. Get our second MLS, MLS Cup. cup. Uh, outstanding and good luck. Thank, Thank you. you. Cheers.